Hi, this is Queer Margin Series 1, Old Queens, and I'm Rhys T. Matthews. Each episode, I talk to a member of the LGBTQ plus community who are rarely heard from. And this series, I'm talking to older queer people about their experiences. And this is episode 10, Patrick. Honey, you're talking to the bathhouse slut of life and wonderment for at least 20 years. Queen, queen of the bathhouse, sluts. Honey, I stacked them up like cordwood. I was naughty. Completely flat ass naughty. There's no finer slut than me, honey. No finer slut. Patrick was suggested to me by the podcast producer Dan Tabersky, who was responsible for shows such as Missing Richard Simmons and Surviving Y2K. Dan had made a film about Patrick a few years ago, which I've put a link to in the episode description, and so told me I should interview who he called the best old queen you've ever met. So I followed his advice. Patrick is the son of a dairy farmer. He lives near Seattle now, and in the 70s he released the first gay-themed country album, which is called Lavender Country. Just 1,000 copies were made, and the bravery it took to release a gay country album all those years ago meant that shortly after its release, the album, and Patrick, fell into obscurity. But over 40 years later, and one song has brought the album and the artist back from the unknown. And the song is called These Cock-Sucking Tears. Here's Patrick. My father knew exactly who he had on his hand uh, in, like, 1951. What do you mean by that? Uh, and, well, um, he knew that I was cut from a different cloth. He knew that I was oriented to all things feminine. He knew that I wouldn't stop singing show tunes. (laughs) He he knew that I was a complete catastrophe at um, farm, running farm machinery and equipment. (laughs) He knew, quote, you got to get up, you got to get the hell up out of this valley and go to Seattle or you're going to starve to death. What, because you're so useless working on the farm or... Well, yes. I mean, we were farmers, yeah. and it was labor-intensive and all that. And there was, there was plenty of work to do that didn't involve me working with, like, farm machinery. Yeah. Um, and so I spent a lot of time doing a lot of hard work. But it was just that I was not interested in butch things. Mm-hmm. And I was oriented toward the feminine. And when you and say that he knew, how did you know that he knew? It starts with a story. One day, I was a bad, a, a bad little boy, and I ran away from my work responsibilities, and I went down to the lake by myself and um, was playing 
Cleopatra of the Nile <laughs> on a rickety raft I, I had built. And I was supposed to be up working. And um, my thought, my, so I was like, A, supposed to be working. B, I wasn't supposed to be down at the lake by myself. It was forbidden. C, I had grabbed his best hammer and saw to build my rickety raft, and I wasn't supposed to do that, and I knew that I was supposed to work with the old broken tools, but I took his tools instead, and, you know, I committed like four or five sins. I was, I was a bad boy. And he came down to the lake, and he found me on my rickety little raft, and when he yelled at me, I got startled, and my rickety little raft fell apart. His tools went down to the bottom of the drink. My dad had to come wading into the lake and fish me out. And um, he he was mad at me. And uh, he said I was supposed to be up in the machine shed working instead of down at the lake playing silly-ass games. And he was going to spank me, but I knew he wasn't going to spank me because he never spanked any of us. But my sister was so horrified that he, I might get a spanking that he sent me up to the house packing. And I went and told my mom that my dad would almost spank me for playing silly-ass games. And again, I was playing Cleopatra of the Nile. <laughs> that was the silly-ass game I was playing. I was about eight and so the fact that I did, was doing all manner of things sissy was known in the family. It was no secret. It was out in the open and um, discussed at the dinner table and never really in a, in a derogatory way. But like everybody knew I was a sissy and it was open information in the family dynamic. Wow. Yeah. That must have been quite... Every, everybody knew that I was a sissy, and it was open information in the family dynamic. Was that, was that, was that quite like nice, then, to know that you didn't have to keep it secret? That, that was, I didn't know it at the time. I thought it was normal, but of right. course it was highly unusual. I, I can go on for hours... 50 hours at least about the insight that my father had for who he had on his hands and the absolutely lovely, kind, accepting, merciful. (laughs) (laughs) Don't forget the merciful part. The way that my father handled me um, there are a lot of stories. We were a big Catholic family, Catholic, mm-hmm. Roman Catholic, in church every Sunday, every Sunday, Roman Catholic, through and through. My father drove me to the Catholic Youth Organization talent show in 1959 at Queen of Angels Catholic Church, Port Angeles, Washington. Look it up on a map. You'll see how isolated it is. 
he drove me to the talent show in full, head-on, convincing drag. Now, that's a dad. Why was he like that, do you think? What, what gave him that insight? Um, I think he, followed, he was pretty seasoned as a parent by the time he got to me. And he was, even though he yelled a lot and looked like a bumpkin hayseed, he was a very dedicated and loving parent. Mm-hmm. And um, he took his parenting responsibilities seriously. And he had two principles that he followed. One was... You can't, every child is an individual. You can't change the basic nature of a child. You've got to work with the child that you're given. He knew that long before he got to me that you, you don't cookie cut children. They're all individuals, and every one of them has to be treated differently in order to be a successful parent. Almost all good parents know that, you know. This is the child God gave me to love, and by God, I have to figure out some kind of way to do that. That's my job. So he knew all that pretty well. They were ingrained by the time he got to me, and by the time he got to me, he didn't, he didn't have any more information than anybody else. He just followed those two principles, and it led him where it led him. How many uh, brothers and sisters did you have? I had 10 brothers and sisters. Okay. And were you the... Yeah. What number were you? Big family. I was right smack in the middle. Okay. Wow. He, he, um, he saw me when I was like five years old, long before I could comprehend who I was and where I was destined to go. He saw way, way early and way deep who he had on his hand, you know, and he gulped three times and he said, okay, well, this is, this is the child God gave me. And he, and he followed his nose and he was, um, a, a prima, ba- a prima ballerina in a, in a, in a social and political context where Everybody else was just a goofball. Uh, so did um, you ever tell him that you were gay? No, because there was no word for it. Um, and I wasn't ready to perceive myself that way. And he died when I was barely 17 mm-hmm. in 1960, way before any of this was like even discussable material. It's just that I knew and he knew what was going on. He came all the way up to saying, I know you're destined for a homosexual life. He told me that, you know, in Hayfield, 1959. My father said, don't sneak. You'll lose your immortal soul. Mm -hmm. I mean, who the fuck got that in Hayfield in 1959 in rural America? It was just like fucking profound. 
When you grew up, when was the first time that you knew of that you met another gay person? Well, um, I got uh, busted for committing homosexual act in the Peace Corps in 1966. It's this national program that Kennedy set up in the early 60s that send Americans abroad and go into third world communities and help them figure out how to be dutiful, bright capitalists or whatever. It's it's one of those programs. An international help program set up by the federal government. Of course, there's all there's all kinds of political strings attached to it and all that. But at the time, it was a big deal to get accepted into the Peace Corps and considered this like ultra-liberal thing to do, blah, blah, blah. And so I joined the Peace Corps, and I got caught being gay, doing homosexual things in India in 1966. And I, and I got thrown out of the Peace Corps for that. I'm the first cocksucker to be thrown out of the American Peace Corps for second cock, okay? Put it in my bio. (laughs) So I was 21, and it was 1966, and clearly I had to deal with the issue. So that was when it, like, hit my consciousness. Look, you know, you're a homosexual, and nobody's going to let you do that in this culture publicly. That's where you are, and that's where you landed, and you've got to figure out your way through this. And how do you be a homosexual and not sneak in in that cultural context? I always remembered what my father told me, of course, because it was so profound. And was it with another member of the Peace Corps that you got caught with? Uh, uh, It was. Mm -hmm. Um, and, And there's a whole story behind that, but there's also things to protect behind that, so... I got kicked out for sucking dick. <laughs> Will you tell me about these cocksucking tears? Well, cocksucking tears is, of course, cocksucking tears is a is a is a politically pointed parody about straight white heterosexual privilege. In 1969, straight white heterosexual privilege was assumed by pretty much all straight, white, heterosexual, privileged men. They actually thought somehow they were superior. And that's what the song is about. No, hey, hold on here, guys. No, you're not any better than anybody else. Fuck off. That's what Cocksucking Tears is about, is dressing down the the false and full of isms notion that white heterosexual normative conduct is better than anything that anybody else in the world is doing. Since you've brought up the topic of of, uh, cock-sucking tears, um, I'm a Marxist, but that means that... You have to understand the dialectics of how things work. And dialectical means, you know, things turn into their opposite, and that's how things advance. So there's a, there's a dynamic, a, di, a, a dialectical dynamic with Cocksucking Tears. Cocksucking Tears was the definitive song 
that sank Lavender Country into oblivion and obscurity for 40 years. Mm -hmm. That song in particular was the song that was screamingly, completely unacceptable and assigned me to the trash bin of history for my whole adult life. That song in particular, plus the fact that it was gay country, plus the fact that it had other political content. I mean, it, Lavender Country was like beyond the pale. And Cocksucking Tears was definitely proof that it was unacceptable. And then 45 years passed, and I'm doing music, yeah, but I'm singing old songs to old people in retirement homes and having a good time with it. And Lavender Country's like, dead, dead, dead. And I know it, and I understand all the reasons why. Somebody put cock-sucking tears on YouTube, and somebody else heard it and mm -hmm. said, what is this? And they went to eBay, and they found one of my original 1973 albums and they took it to a label and said don't you guys want to take a look at this and the first thing that i know is this label is calling me up offering to reissue lavender country off of cocksucking tears the song flipped and and turned into its opposite. The song that sank Lavender Country for 40 years was now the cutting edge leadership in why Lavender Country was being revived. And everybody who ever talks to me about Lavender Country goes immediately to cocksucking tears. And I cannot stand on a stage anywhere in the world and get away with not singing cocksucking tears because everybody knows that's the song they want to hear. Do you get where I'm coming from? <laughs> yeah, I get where you're coming from. Into, yeah, it turned into its opposite. And the very song that suppressed Lavender Country for 45 years became the cutting edge of its revival. Given the choice, do you think you would, would you have ever released a song if you could go back and change it? I, I, I wouldn't go back and change it because he, here, here's the thing about that. And it, it, at the time, you know, I was fighting with these decisions and how far should I go and blah, 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 blah. But then I lived for 40 years and I realized that it wouldn't have mattered how watered down. I put things in 1973 when I made the, a gay country album. As soon as you say gay country album in 1973, it sinks to the bottom of the sea. Nobody's going to buy it. Nobody's going to listen. It did sell. It sold like it sold all its copies at the well, time. It, didn't it? It, Yes, and we put it out ourselves, and and we we made a thousand albums, and yes, we did we did sell them to our little pocket of Stonewall Rebellion 
gay liberationist. Uh, and that was successful and it was fun and, you know, interesting and all that. But it had no commercial value. That's my point. Right. There was no way we were going to make money off of it or that anybody was going to buy it. I mean, you know what Lavender Country is. We knew what it was when we made it. You know, it's a really good quality album with a lot of reverberating, real gutsy, emotional, and political stuff. Um, and we knew what it was when we made it. Um, but we knew there was no point in trying to have it have commercial value. That turned out to be the saving grace, too, because what happened was, well, we can't sell it. Nobody's going to buy it. So we're not beholden to anybody. So we don't have to water anything down to make it more commercially viable because it's not commercially viable, no matter how much we water it down. So we might as well beef it up and say exactly what we want to say. The authenticity of the album, the beauty of its raw truth is that turned into its opposite too. It's, that's now the backbone of why people appreciate the album so much. It's because it's because it wasn't beholden to anybody. So we got to say the raw, real, straight, hundred percent truth. And <laughs> there's very few people in Nashville country music scene in the last fifty years who were, like, really able to do that. Meanwhile, there's a whole bunch of people running around in country music who don't believe in any of that redneck shit. <laughs> you know, they're all Democrats. They all know black people were the backbone of American music. Any half-baked idiot knows that. Going back to 1973, then, when it first came out, you get a much negative reaction at that time. Lavender Country never hit the visibility radar screen uh, of the popular culture enough to get much of any reaction. Um, Lavender Country pretty much stayed underground mm -hmm. and um, and had a very, very long slumber underground. It wasn't until who, the anonymous person, whoever it was... It wasn't until they put uh, Cox Second Tears on YouTube that that was the beginning of the, the, the broader culture even noticing Lavender Country. And then you, so you say you still perform it. How often do you, do you, would you say you perform songs from that album? A lot. Let me tell you what's happening. I just finished a show in Port Townsend. We're doing a show in Portland. We're doing two shows back-to-back -back the middle of the month in February. I'm going on tour March 8th, starting in Pittsburgh. We're flying to San Francisco to put on three performances of the, of the Lavender Country Ballet. And then um, I have a gig in Grass Valley, California in August and a couple of two or three yard parties up here in the Pacific Northwest in July. And then I, and I'm also making a new album that's literally going to be mastered today. And... Um, I'm running as I'm running as fast as an old man wants to. I'll tell you that. So, I mean, I I can't. I'm 
I'm too fucking old, man. I'm 75 years old. I can't go touring 300 nights a year. That's absurd. But I've done, I don't know, probably 60 or 70 lavender country shows since this whole thing started. Yeah, it's turned into a, it's, it's turned into a, a thing. And what and was the lavender country ballet you were saying? I did a show in San Francisco this in, in the summer a couple of years ago. And I got a call the next morning. And he said, hi, my name is Robert Deckers. I'm the director of Post Ballet Company here in San Francisco. We do professional ballets. I was at your show last night. I got the whole thing choreographed in my mind. I've been up all night. I've got it. I'm ready. I want to do a Lavender Country Ballet. Can we, can we, can we? I'm like floored, right? Mm. <laughs> like, are you, are you out of your mind? Are you kidding me? Um, but one thing led to another, and we did do uh, a couple of ballets. Real ballerinas, six dancers, three males, three females, and um, a live a live production, a live band with me doing the lead singing. Tripped out, right? Yeah. And you can find it online. Just just Google post ballet lavender country, and all this, all this, um, like in the last four years and none of which I even asked for. It just all fell on me. Hmm. Yeah, uh, starting at age 70 when I was obscure and happy and not even thinking about Lavender Country. And I, I had a whole life without Lavender Country. It wasn't really even on my mind. I did all kinds of things with my life besides Lavender Country. I had a very interesting activist-oriented militant, radical life, including raising a couple of kids and getting married and having a lovely husband for 31 years and a very nice full life. And I was happy with the life I had. Just going back then to to your uh, like younger days, when you were younger, was there much of a party scene where you were... Honey, you're talking to the bathhouse slut of life and wonderment for at least 20 years. <laughs> Queen... <laughs> Queen, queen of the bathhouse, sluts. Oh, I st- uh, honey, I stacked them up like cordwood. I was naughty, completely flat-ass naughty. <laughs> You're not, there's no finer slut than me, honey. No finer slut. So what made you want to settle down then? You mentioned um, you were married for 31 years. Uh, well, uh, I, I married... Later, I married in my mid-40s. Okay. And so I was, I was a little wiser mm-hmm. and, um, and uh, able to uh, come up with more reasons than being a thrilled slut <laughs> in, in order to pick a, pick a partner. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and I did pick a partner, and um, he's lovely, just lovely. He's everybody who's ever met him says he's the nicest man I ever met. Everybody says that about my husband, and he has many other really uh, wonderful qualities. And you've had said you've had children together. We don't have children together, exactly. Um, I had a, 
I had a daughter with a lesbian activist by design. By, she was a lesbian activist. I was a gay man. We decided we were going to co-parent, and uh, we made arrangements to do what you do when she knew she was fertile, and it worked. And uh, we have a daughter, and um, we had our daughter the same year I made Lavender Country. So you uh, did that all the way back then, like in the 70s? Yeah. I came from this big, five, vibrant family. I told you one of the things that stuck in my craw about it in the 70s when I was coming out was that it was just by definition, if you were, if you were gay, then you then you weren't going to have kids, you weren't going to have a family. That was just the way it was. And that stuck in my cry. I didn't like that rule. I didn't like that rule at all. That's so so ahead of its time for the two of you to have a child together. Yeah, we did. She (laughs) wanted to have a child, but she didn't want to be a single parent. And we talked it through, actually, for a couple of years. We talked about it for a couple of years before it happened. And it so happened that in 1973, that's when she was born. So that's a daughter. And in 1975, a young black woman named Linda Navarro moved into my house with me. Linda and I were always just friends. But uh, Linda had a month-old baby when she moved into my house. And it was supposed to be temporary, but Linda stayed for what, 25 years. (laughs) And, you know, by the time this kid was two and a half, you know, he'd been on my hip and I'd been through several hundred diapers doing what you do for an infant. I had this, I had this daughter and she was with me a fair amount and the two kids bonded and one thing led to another, and and I have, and I adopted a milk car, and and he's my baby, and I raised my children together, and I'm and I'm like every other parent. You can you can talk all you want about lavender country, and you can you can laud my new album to the skies, but my my pride and joy, and my claim to fame, and my heart is with my children. Am I right in thinking that you were put into a mental institute when you relating to, to you being gay? The India experience, being thrown out of the Peace Corps for being, for sucking dick, mm-hmm. um, was highly traumatizing. And it's, it set me back a good pace, mentally and emotionally, because after the way my father had treated me, um, the India experience was really brutal on mm-hmm. me emotionally. Because like, then I got it about how it really worked, and that the world was not going to treat me like my father did, mm-hmm. and I had to uh, wake up to that. There were also some deep love feeling involved in this escapade, and and I loved India a lot and deeply, and I really wanted to go back to India. And um, I was I was a, a sad puppy. 
Mm-hmm. And so I went home to my mom, and my mom saw how sad I was. And she took me to the doctor, and the doctor made a bunch of mistakes and thought that I needed psychiatric care and took me and my mom took me to the state hospital mm-hmm. um, and I was in and it was a voluntary commitment and I wandered around in there for a couple of weeks trying to figure out what the hell was going on um, and it's a very it was very freaky yeah I bet uh yeah, it was. And uh, finally, an, an angel came up to me in the form of a nurse. She walked up to me and she said, listen to me, you're not mentally ill. You're not sick. You're gay. Nobody here can help you. You need to get out of here. There's nothing here for you. Get your shit and go out the door. <laughs> and, and so I did. And have you experienced much um, homophobia then? There was, there, was, there was a ton of homophobia in the 60s. By 67, 68, because of the the anti-war movement and the hippie movement and the free love movement and all that stuff that was going on culturally in the, you know, counterculture, there was a, there was a feeling that, that the Stonewall thing was going to break. Like, I spent a, a few years trying to be a hippie during that time. And the issue of homosexuality uh, and, its, and its place was being, dis- being discussed. What was the name of your new album? When's that out? The name of my new album is Blackberry Rose and Other Songs and Sorrows from Lavender Country. And when's that going to be out? Darling, who the hell knows? I, I'm stumbling, put, trying to put one foot in front of the other. All I can tell you is it's being mastered today, and the guy who's doing the design cover has just showed up at my table, and we're putting a jacket together and hoping somebody bites. When somebody does, it'll be out. Do you have any advice for younger queer people? Yeah. You're, you're supposed to be yourself. And B, you're supposed to be standing on my shoulders and going higher, deeper, longer, better, farther than I ever dreamed possible. That's your job, is to, is to stand on my shoulders and take this to the next level. We're not even done, we're just getting started. So you're supposed to use you're supposed to use me. You're supposed to be on my shoulders. That's how the, that's how this generational thing is supposed to work. You're supposed to take what I've done and take it take it to the next level.
it's going to be way higher than I ever dreamed possible. So get her done. <laughs> That's what I have to say to them. Talking to Patrick was amazing. His story is fascinating, funny, and touching, and he's one of the most sincere people I've spoken to. At 75 years old, it seems like his career is on an absolute high, and I hope he gets more and more success as the years go on. Thanks so much to Dan Tabirsky for putting me in touch with Patrick. And if you haven't, check out Dan's film, which is called These Cocksucking Tears, and his podcasts are on iTunes. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you're listening. And follow on all social medias by searching Queer Margins, where you'll find pictures of Patrick and a clip from the film. Thanks a lot for listening.